0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the last few verses of John chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 30 in just a few moments. And again, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew um, or up in the balcony, then in the chair in front of you. And I'd love for you to follow along as we continue our journey. We're going to end chapter 5 um, today. If you'll recall, chapter 5 began with Jesus healing a man who had been lame, who had been sick. Now, he was there along with another group of invalid sick people. You'll recall that Jesus had made his way to Jerusalem, and he's there at the temple, and he's at a particular gate that was named after what? Sheep. Now, at this gate, there was a lot of people who were sick, who were confused, who were outcasts of society. And definitely we know that those that were well-to-do Jews, those that were even average Jews, they would do all that they could to avoid associating with this group of outcasts. And yet here we see that Jesus was actually drawn to them. So Jesus does this miraculous work, and he heals this lame man. And instead of people celebrating, as some did, the Jewish leaders, the men who knew the Old Testament scriptures, the the religious leaders, they get upset. And so they come to Jesus, and they're not so much upset that he's done a miracle. The ironic part is they don't even mention the fact that this man who had been lame, this man who had been sick, has been miraculously healed. His life has been forever changed. They don't even mention that. But they're upset that Jesus has healed this man on what day of the week? Do you remember? On the Sabbath. So they come to Jesus in verse 17, and they say, Jesus, how could you quote-unquote work on the Sabbath? And Jesus gives a response in verse 17, and he does something that catches them off guard, and that he refers to God as my Father. Well, now they're even more upset They're more upset than the fact that Jesus has done this work on the Sabbath. Now he is claiming to be equal with God. And so now in verse 18, they want to kill him. Look with me in verse 18 of John chapter 5. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Now, friends, as I say every single week, it's critical that we understand the context before we jump into the text that we're going to be in, beginning in verse 30. You see, even though Jesus didn't actually break the Old Testament regulations of the Sabbath, what he broke was some of the additions that rabbis had added to what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy. But instead of Jesus defending himself, instead of Jesus saying, No, I didn't really break the rule that you're thinking because that's not the spirit of of the law, why it was given, no, he doubles down and now he is referring to God as his father. And now he's saying that I am equal with God. And in verses 19 through 29, that we've been going through the last two weeks, and as, as Heath kind of wrapped up last week in verses 24 through 29, Jesus responded. By, by strengthening his claims of saying, here is how and here is why I am equal with God. There are four things that he did to strengthen this claim. In verse 19, he said that he was equal with God because he himself could do equal works. In verse 21, he says that he has the same authority to give life. In verse 23, he says that he can receive equal honor as God. And in verse 24, he says that I have the right to execute final judgment on all mankind. So with that, let's look at the first three verses this morning. We're going to start at verse 30 and look at verse 30 30 through 32. And we're going to see that Jesus here is actually going to summarize all that he's been saying in the first part of chapter five of, of, of trying to explain and give validity to the fact that he is God. Look with me in Act, I mean, at John chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So in essence, Jesus is saying, look here, guys, I'm not actually acting on my own initiative. Everything that I am doing, I am doing in conjunction with God the Father. So if you have a problem with what I'm doing, if you're accusing me of doing wrong, actually what you are doing is you are accusing God of doing something wrong. That's what I call throwing down the gauntlet, right? He's saying, hey, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God, your Father. So now where we're gonna spend most of our time this morning in in verses 33 through 47, Jesus is gonna go even further and he's actually going to provide even more or additional confirmation for this radical claim that he has just made the most radical claim that anyone on the face of the earth has ever made. And what is it? That I am equal to God. With God. And why in the world is that important for us in 2019 in Decatur, Alabama? It's important because if Jesus truly is equal to God, then whatever Jesus says, that's the truth. That is absolute truth. That is what we follow, whether, whether the culture says it's, it's unimportant, whether it's relevant or not, whether someone says it's inconvenient, whether we want to believe it or not. If Jesus truly is who he says he is, if he is God, then what he says goes. So this morning, we're going to look at four additional sources that he's going to provide to claim that he truly is God. The first thing we see in verses 33 through 35 is John the Baptist's testimony. This is the first uh, source that he's going to give to say, look, I really am who I say I am. Look at verses 33 through 35. Jesus says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now don't forget, we studied this the very first couple weeks when we were in John chapter 1. John's not referring to himself here. Okay, So you've got John the author, who whenever he refers to himself, he calls himself John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you've got John the Baptist who was Jesus' cousin. So he's referring to John the Baptist. And if you remember from chapter 1, John the Baptist had two clear um, purposes in his life. The first purpose that we know that John the Baptist had in his life was to prepare the Jewish people for the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 23, it says, He said, I, and it's talking about John the Baptist, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And here's the key. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. His first purpose in life was to prepare the Jewish people that the Messiah was about to come. His second purpose was to actually identify, to call out um, that Jesus actually is the Messiah. Same chapter, John chapter 1, you move on to verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him. Again, this is John the Baptist. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. Why? That he might be revealed to Israel. Now, we know that John actually accomplished both of these purposes. We know that he accomplished both these purposes because there was a time in which the Jewish uh, leaders, the Jewish religious authorities, they sent a delegation, they sent a group of people up ahead to interview John, to say, tell us more about what you're saying and are you really who you say you are? And John confirms this. He says, look, I am not the Messiah. My purpose was to prepare the people. My purpose was to identify that the one who comes behind me, he is the Messiah. Actually, John the Baptist's testimony, it provides even more validity to the fact that Jesus truly is who he says that he is. We know that they must have had some authority or had some confidence in John the Baptist because they send this group of people out to interview him. And when he reveals to them, look, I'm not the Messiah, but there is one who is coming, what do they do? Just like so many other people in Scripture, they saw and they heard the truth right in front of them. But do they accept it? No. They walk away and they miss the Messiah right there in their midst. Now, Jesus often referred to himself as as the light of the world. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Why do, why do I bring this back up? Because John the Baptist, he knew his role. He knew that his role was not to be the light. His role, his purpose was to be a lamp. He was to reflect the light, but he was not the one that was supposed to receive the tension. He was supposed to be the one that when people saw him, that he reflected the light living inside of him, which was Jesus. You see, friends, just as a lamp provides a light for others to see the path, John's purpose was to light the path for, so that other people could actually see Jesus. The focus was never on John the Baptist. The focus was always on Jesus. The focus was never to be on the, on the lamp. That was just, His goal, his purpose was to shine this light so that you would look past the lamp and that you would see the light of the world living inside of him. And I see this displayed so incorrectly every single day, particularly in ministry. I see this particularly in pastors and that they don't want to be the lamp, they want to be the light. They want people to look at them and say, "Look how cool they are, look how relevant they are, look how hip they are, Look at the attractions that they can have." And they want people to build themselves up around their church. They want their church or their sermons or their, their sermon or the, the pastor to have some kind of brand that they build themselves around, so that when people look at them, they don't say, "Look how great God is, look how cool their church is. Look how hip that pastor is, but it's not about Jesus at all." Now of course, this is a warning for all Christians. This is just the world that I live in, in ministry. But for all of us, would we see this as an example for us that it's not about being cool? It's not about looking good? It's not about us at all? We are called to be a reflection of the true light of the world. So for all of us, let's not forget we're not called to be the light, we are called to be a lamp. So as we're a lamp, the question is, Are we need to be checking our motives. Let me ask you this. Are you out for your own attention? Are you out for people to look at you and say, oh man, what a great person they are. Are we out to promote ourselves or do we exist to point people as a lamp to the one true light? Back to John the Baptist. Remember before John the Baptist, There have been 400 years of what? Of of silence, which God had not spoken. So as John the Baptist comes on this scene, there must have been this great sense of excitement. There must have been this great sense of anticipation that now, after 400 years in which we have not heard the word of God spoken, now that we we hear that the Messiah that we've been longing for, that we've read about in scriptures, that the prophets have foretold about, now he's coming. So there's this anticipation that's building. But then, after they hear John the Baptist give this, this stern call for what? For personal repentance after he gives this bold message of calling people out for their sin, of saying that you need to reject your sin, after he calls out the Jewish nation for their hypocrisy, for the way they say they love God with their lips, but their hearts prove something else, and then once he finally says, as Jews, you too need to be baptized in the faith of Jesus Christ, it was too much for most of them. So they end up walking away from that faith. Friends, isn't that true in the church today? It's easy, to be honest with you, to draw a crowd on Sunday mornings. All we have to do is tell people what they want to hear. Let's build them up, make them feel good about themselves. Let's never talk about sin. Let's never talk about hell. Let's never talk about judgment. Let's just tell everybody, hey, we're all accepted. We're all loved. God loves us no matter what, what, what path you take in life. We can have some entertaining music that makes you feel good about where you are. But friends, God's word is essential if we are going to grow as genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And let me be honest with you. God's word's offensive. God's word divides. God's word pushes people away because it says the opposite of what culture wants you to believe. And we've got to make a decision that we are not going to be like other churches, that we're going to say that we're going to add to God's word, we're going to change God's word in order to make the gospel more attractive, in order to make God's word less offensive to other people. I was hoping you'd say amen for that there, okay? We must be careful not to fall into the trap of being more concerned about filling up this room on Sunday mornings rather than being filled with the absolute truth that's found in God's Word. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but church attendance is not going up across our nation. And the easy thing to do is to sugarcoat God's Word, to not talk about certain passages of Scripture that divide us. But friends, the time of testing is coming, and the time of testing is here. And if we don't raise up students, if we don't raise up children that know and believe God's Word, good luck when they go off to college standing strong on a biblical worldview. We have to stand strong and say, this is what matters, even if it means people leave the church, even if it means that people are going to talk about us in the newspaper. We've got to stand strong on God's word. Full buildings, engaging speakers, entertaining music, musicians, it's all going to fade away. The only thing that will stand the test of time is God's word. And church family, the eternity is real. Just because it's 2019, we haven't outsmarted God. God has not evolved on certain issues enough of that I'll keep going on in fact because John the Baptist he proclaimed unpopular truth he was eventually executed why because he called out the personal sin that when he condemned Herod Antipas's unlawful marriage so here we have the original people who were flocking to John the Baptist who were flocking to this message of, of anticipation of Jesus the Messiah was coming but they missed His purpose. And what was his purpose? To point out that the Messiah was coming. And why? Because they lacked genuine repentance. And because they lacked genuine repentance, they eventually turned away from the light of the world that was reflected in John the Baptist. Why? Because they loved their evil deeds. Jesus said it in John 3, 19. We love John three sixteen, but you keep reading, listen to what Jesus said. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, meaning Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Now in Luke's gospel, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest person to ever walk the face of the earth up till that point. And so now we're going to see that Jesus is going to present testimony where he's going to claim that, that what I'm about to say, that my works are even greater than that of the testimony of John the Baptist. That's the second piece of evidence that Jesus gives in proclaiming that he truly is equal with God. And in verse 36, they, they are Jesus' incredible works. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is actually greater Than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, these works, of course, they included many of the miracles that Jesus had already performed. These miracles were another piece of confirmation that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Jesus truly was the Son of God. If you take all the four Gospels, there were more than three dozen miracles that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But towards the end of John, I I love this verse. John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I can't wait to heaven to learn what those other miracles are. Can you? My mind just kind of wonders, what were these other miracles that Jesus actually performed? But even after Jesus had performed these undeniable, miraculous works in front of their eyes, of eyewitness, of word of mouth that had transpired, many people continued to reject the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. The third piece of evidence that he gives in verses 37 through 38 are the Father's words. John chapter 5, verse 37 and 38, Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now there's two particular instances in the Bible in which God has audibly spoken to Jesus. One was his baptism. Do you remember the other one? the Mount of Transfiguration. And both those, God audibly speaks and then he gives validation to the fact that this is my son and whom I'm, I'm well pleased. So here, when Jesus actually says his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, this was actually a rebuke that he's giving to those Jews that were in front of them who were unbelieving Jews. Even these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders that knew the scriptures inside and out, that out of the Old Testament, many chunks of the passages, passages, they had them memorized. They knew that there were times in which God had audibly spoken, which he had manifested himself in a physical presence. Do you remember uh, Moses in the burning bush? Remember when the children of Israel are going, there's the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire that he leads them out of. Whenever we know that he spoke audibly to the prophets and he gave them wisdom, he wrestled with Jacob. He appeared in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and on and on and on. But now, Jesus says, now you are rejecting God's own voice which he is speaking to you through the voice of his son. But they refused to listen to Jesus. And Jesus was the final and the ultimate revelation of God to mankind. And by doing so, they admitted their total ignorance of God. Why? Because those who reject Jesus cannot know God the Father. In another one of John's letters that he writes, it's one of the last books of the Bible, in 1 John chapter 5, he doubles down on this thought. Listen to what he says in 1 John 5 verses 9 and 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony himself. But listen to this last sentence. Whoever does not believe that God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning who? His Son. And finally, the last piece of evidence. You see in verses 39 through 47, and it's the Old Testament Scriptures, Verses 39-47, through you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And that is they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How many of you are are scared of heights? Go ahead and raise your hand. We can be honest here. I am not one that is fond of heights. Whenever we go on trips, um, Lindsay always plans those trips. She's the daughter of two engineers. I have to say nothing else, right? She knows how to plan a trip. So a couple years ago, we had the opportunity to go to New York City. One of the things you do when you go to New York City is go to the top of what? The Empire State Building. So she got the tickets, and she knew the time we were supposed to go and the day we were supposed to go. And so we have our ticket, and we go up the elevator. And after you go up the elevator, you after you wait in line, you've got 10 to 12 minutes, and you can go walk around different spots, and you can take selfies and different pictures and whatever you want to do. Well, imagine if this happened. What if this was your one chance, the chance of a lifetime for you to go to New York City? You were waiting, you were longing for this trip, and you wanted to go up the elevator, and you couldn't wait to see the skyline of New York. So finally, you have your ticket, you get up there, and that person, and you're up there, and as soon as the elevator opens, you kind of see out of your periphery this, this vision. You see the skyline there, but instead, your eyes are drawn to this person that has these incredible shoes. And for the entire 10 minutes, entire 12 minutes, your eyes are on those shoes and you begin to want those shoes and you begin to think of what wardrobe you could wear with those shoes. And then you go and you find that person. You begin to talk to them and say, tell me where you got those shoes. How much did they cost? Oh, they're online. So you pull out your phone and you try to find that. And they say, time's up. And you get on the elevator and you go back down. Now maybe out of the sideline you would have seen the incredible view that you have been waiting for all this time, but you you took all of your time to focus on what? On something that was of far less significance. That's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees here. He's saying, look, the Pharisees, look, you know the Scriptures inside and out, but you're missing the overall framework of the Scriptures. You're so infatuated with every jot and tittle of the law that you're missing the overall framework, which is the overall framework of the Old Testament is pointing you to Jesus. You see, they clung to their old system of beliefs which said that if I work hard enough, if I obey the law, if I'm good enough, then surely God will allow me into heaven. And because they held on to that false sense of belief, they missed the main point of Jesus' message. Church, here's a warning for all of us. There is nothing life-giving about studying the Scriptures if we fail to discern its true content and purpose. There's nothing life-giving if we can memorize verses, if we know all about them, but we don't apply them to our lives. That's why James says, don't just hear the Word of God, do what it says. Paul, who called himself the Pharisee of all Pharisees, He later put it this way in Philippians. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them what? As rubbish, meaning trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this key phrase here. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's what the Pharisees thought, that we were righteous, that God will love us because we do the right things and we keep the law. But instead he says, but that which comes through, what's that next word? Faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God that depends, and there's a word again, on faith. See, these Jewish religious leaders, they refuse to acknowledge their inability to do anything about what separated them from a holy God. And instead of crying out to God for mercy, instead of crying out to God for grace that was given to them, that was found through Jesus, they continued to think that they could earn it on their own. Just pull yourself up your bootstrap, just do enough good things, and surely God will say, well, come on into my heaven because you've done enough good things. In church, we see the same thing today. People thinking that, oh, I'll come to church I'll read my Bible and check that off the list. I'll even bring my offering. I'll come to Sunday school, and surely I can do enough things, and God allow me into heaven. But friends, when we stand face to face before God at judgment, and we want to believe it or not, every single one of us, there will be a time in our life in which we will stand alone. Not with your grandparents, not with your spouse, not with your children, but we will stand alone before God at judgment. And I pray that he doesn't say this of us as he did of the Pharisees. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, it's easy for us, especially in the South, act like chameleons, and we can come in here, we can dress the right parts, we can say the right words, we can even have prayer requests during small groups, we can sing songs, we can raise our hands during worship, we can have a tear shed down our face, whenever we're singing, we can read God's word, we can give an amen, we can put money in the offering plate, but then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, our hearts, our priorities, our focus are anywhere but on God. And, friends, God wants to be the Lord over your life, not just a focal point for 75 minutes during a worship service on Sunday morning. Jesus, he accused the Pharisees of of desiring the attention or glory for themselves, not on God. So in essence, Jesus is saying, how can I be glorified as your Lord when you yourself, you want the glory yourself. You want it to be about you. You want people to look at you and say, oh, what a great person you are. I'm so proud of you. And I promise I'm almost done, but let me pause here for a moment. Because what an indictment that is on many of us, including me today. How many times do we do things and we say, I'm doing this in Jesus' name, but we're hoping that we will receive the credit. We're hoping that someone will give us the attention, that someone will give us the glory. Maybe we do things for others in hopes that maybe they'll think more highly of us. Maybe they will will remember us and we'll get some personal benefit later. So I'm going to pick and choose who I'm going to be nice to. I'm going to say this is all for Jesus, but it's really for me because I want you to think a lot about me. I want you to remember me. I want you to do a, a nice favor for me later. Or do we do things so that they might be blessed Do we do things so that they might receive some relief, some comfort? Do we we support them in Jesus' name so that God alone might use your efforts so that he might be the one who receives the glory for himself? Just something for us to think about. What are our motives here? Finally, Jesus said that they they misunderstood the law. They misunderstood what Moses was doing here. So what was the purpose of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments and the law all together, it was given, listen to me, I want to make sure you understand this, the purpose of the law was given to reveal man's sinfulness and our inability to save ourselves. But unfortunately, the Pharisees, they saw keeping the law as a means for salvation. And how many people, my fears, in Baptist churches, sitting here in church all across our country, they still think the same thing. I'll just keep the law and that'll get me into heaven. But that was never the intent of the law. Listen to Paul explain this in the New Testament. Therefore, the law has come to be our tutor to what? To lead us to Christ. So that we may be justified by, there's the word again, by what? Faith. The law never could and it still cannot save you. It was never its intent. Why? Because if you violate even one portion of the law, you must pay for that consequence. And you, if that's what you believe, you miss missed the whole point of Jesus' message. And his message was grace. His message is that someone has already come in and that someone has already paid your debt. He's already paid for the consequences that you've deserved. And that someone has a name and his name is Jesus. If the Pharisees had simply understood this and believed this, then they would have responded just as Philip did in John chapter 1 when he re- realized that Jesus was the one that the prophets had been prophesying about. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses, there is the word, in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And the Jewish leaders will eventually not only reject Moses, but they'll reject Jesus. And because of their misunderstanding of the law, they will actually use the law as their own justification to crucify Jesus. John 19, 7. They said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Why? Because he has made himself the son of God. They rejected John the Baptist's testimony. They rejected more than three dozen miracles that were performed. They rejected God's word himself. They rejected the Old Testament scriptures. And as a result of missing these four, what I would say indisputable pieces of evidence that prove that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the most scandalous act that has ever taken place in human history occurred, that they murdered their own Messiah. Church, I pray we don't miss it. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ, the full revelation of God and his word. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss that he doesn't want 75 minutes on Sunday morning. He wants your life. He wants to be the focus of your life. He wants to be the priority of your life. He wants to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises made and the promises kept through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for his obedience that upon your command, he left heaven's throne to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to teach us many things, to perform miracles, but ultimately to take the wrath of God Of God, to take it upon himself so that we might receive the right to be called sons and daughters of yours. God, I pray that never gets old. God, I pray we never forget the price that was paid so that we might have this relationship with you. It's so easy to turn to you. The Lord demands our life. I pray that if there's someone here today, Lord, that has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. That today they would turn their lives, they would turn their works over to you, and they would find a Savior who is waiting, who is longing, who is desiring a relationship with them. They would repent of their sins, and they would come to you and find a Savior that's willing, that's waiting, and desiring to welcome them into your family. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for all of your blessings. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.